0: You're listening to audio from Plankrow Harvest Church located in Crossville, Tennessee. If you'd like more information about our church and its various ministries, please visit our website at www.plankrowharvest.org. So tonight we're going to be in Job chapter 11 through 14. And, uh, you know, over the past few weeks we've, we've looked at the council of Job's friends. We saw Eliphaz first, then Bildad. Tonight we're going to wrap up the first round. Of conversation as we look at the council of Zophar, and uh, it's interesting. I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that the common idea is that these three men, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, that they all, that they spoke in turn from the oldest to the youngest. And uh, as you grow old and more experienced, not a hundred percent, but most of the time, as you grow older, you become more soft-hearted. You become a little more tender. And uh, this tends to be true with what we see with Job's three friends. Um, they're, they're all very direct and very accusatory, and the lack of sympathy grows with each speech. So uh, softest with the oldest, then it gets a little harsher, and now we've got the youngest guy speaking, and uh, we see that he is very prideful and lacks in mercy almost completely. And uh, so we're going to read through these chapters. We'll start with chapter 11. And uh, look at Zophar's response. It says, Then Zophar the Namathite replied, Should this abundance of words go unanswered, and such a talker be acquitted? Should your babbling put others to silence so that you can keep on ridiculing with no one to humiliate you? You have said, My teaching is sound, and I am pure in your sight. But if only God would speak and open his lips against you, he would show you the secrets of wisdom, for the true wisdom has two sides. Know then that God has chosen to overlook some of your iniquity. Can you fathom the depths of God or discover the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens. What can you do? They are deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. If he passes by and throws someone in prison or convenes a court, who can stop him? Surely he knows which people are worthless. If he sees iniquity, will he not take note of it? But a stupid person will gain understanding as soon as a wild donkey is born a human. As for you, if you redirect your heart and spread out your hands to him in prayer, If there is iniquity in your hand, remove it, and don't allow injustice to dwell in your tents. Then you will hold your head high, free from fault. You will be firmly established and unafraid, for you will forget your suffering, recalling it only as water that has flowed by. Your life will be brighter than noonday, its darkness will be like the morning. You will be confident, because there is hope. You will look carefully about and lie down in safety. You will lie down with no one to frighten you, and many will seek your favor. But the sight of the wicked will fail. Their way of escape will be cut off, and their only hope is their last breath. So Zophar, he wastes no time getting directly to his point. And you can imagine uh, seeing Zophar sitting there, waiting his turn. and, And once the ice was broken, Joe's friends start to speak. And so, as we've noticed with the other two, they're not the best listeners in the world. And they've already started, they talked even about... You know, we got together and put our heads together and talked while we were on our way to see you. And so that process has continued while Job speaks, a friend speaks, Job speaks, a friend speaks. And so Zophar's been sitting there and he's ready to get things off his chest. He's waited his turn. He's the young guy. He's waited his turn according to his age. And then he just lets loose. And much like Bildad, what we see is that Zophar, he accuses Job of blowing hot air. And what he basically does is he essentially tells Job, listen, man, your words are worthless. And he, he views Job's comments up to this point as just an attempt to silence his critics. He's like, Job, you're, trying to, you're just trying to get us to shut up and it's not going to work. And what Zophar tells him is, listen, you're wasting your time. All of this self-righteous talk, it's not going to make things better and it's not going to keep us silent. And not only does he see Job's words as useless, but he goes as far as accusing Job of mocking God. He's like, you're mocking God with your speech. Well, what does he mean here? Zophar accuses Job of being self-righteous. Job's just defending himself, and Zophar views all of his words as lies. His defense is worthless before God. And for one to stand before God and spew known lies, it's a very bold position. If I'm standing for God, and I think that I can pull the wool over his eyes, and I can spew lies, that's a very pride, prideful and bold position. And that's what Zophar is accusing Job of. He's basically saying, listen, God knows the truth, and God can't be fooled. So why are you standing here spewing all these lies? And in Zophar's position, if we look at what the stance that he's taken, we could describe it as holier-than-thou. Right? He's insinuating that he knows the mind of God far better than Job does. And what we know from chapter 1, you know, the information that we get about God, the information that we get about Job, that proves that what Zophar's thinking, that proves it is to be false. But what we see is that Zophar just doubles down on this position as he continues to speak. He just ramps it up and up and up and up. His accusations become very, very direct in verse 4. He says, you have said my teaching is sound and I am pure in your sight. So, so Zophar says, for you say, he's telling Job, I've sat back, I've listened to you for quite some time and I'm sick of listening. He says, you've argued that all of your ways are pure and that you're clean before God. But look, Job, look at the situation that you find yourself in. If you were so pure, we wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be sitting here in a trash dump, and we wouldn't be here trying to console you. It's all a lie. Job, it's all a lie. And, and Zophar doesn't say it, but what he insinuates is, Job, why don't you just come clean? Everyone here knows this is a lie. You're not going to silence us. You can't fool God. You can claim to be pure, you can claim to be blameless, but if that was the case, we wouldn't find ourselves here. Just come clean. And what we see is that this, it's this continuation of poor theology by Job's friends, that the righteous are always blessed and the wicked are always judged. And again, I know this is getting repetitive, but eternally that's 100% true. But in the temporal, we know just from our own experience in our own life, that's not always true. We've seen wicked people prosper. And we've seen people that are righteous that struggle. You know, we saw, we put pictures up of Pastor Chibui on there this morning. Those people are struggling just to have food to eat. And we visited. I mean, there's some righteous people there, and they're struggling. So the theology of Job's friends, it's off. But there's something else going on here that we've got to take note of. And again, notice what Zophar says about Job's claim. He says, this is what you said, Job, that your doctrine is pure and that you're clean in God's eyes. But I think if we, if we read the book, as we've read through the book, we've got to push back on that a little bit. And I would ask you the question, where has Job claimed that? Where has Job claimed what Zophar is saying? Where has Job said what Zophar is saying he said? He's, he's, Zophar's putting words in his mouth. If you go back and you look at jo, Job 6.24, These are the words of Job. He says, teach me and I'll be silent. Help me understand what I did wrong. He's saying, I don't recognize anything that I've done wrong in my life, but I'm willing to hear it pointed out. In 720, he says, if I have sinned, this is Job speaking to God, if I have sinned, what have I done to you? Watcher of humanity, why have you made me your target so that I've become a burden to you? If I've sinned, what have I done to you? In 10, 14, and 15, he says, if I sin, you would notice, and you would not acquit me of iniquity. If I am wicked, woe to me. And even if I'm righteous, I can't lift my head up. So Zophar's telling Job, listen, you're standing there, you've claimed to be perfect, but Job's never claimed to be perfect. To this point, Job's argument has been one of confusion. And he doesn't know of any wrongdoing that fits the perceived judgment that he's received, like we talked about last week. Job feels like, listen, I get it. I ran the stop sign, but why do I get life in prison for running the stop sign? I don't know of anything that I've done that fits the way that I've been treated. And in his own words, Job has asked for specific accusations. He's like, what have I done? That's what he's told all of his friends. He said, listen, you spew generalities at me, but what's the real truth? Like, give me something concrete. If I've done something wrong, tell me what it is. And he's even asked God the same thing. Reveal any unknown sin that I have. The words, if I sin and if I am guilty, are not the words of a man who clings to this idea or notion that he's completely perfect. And yet, that's what Zophar is throwing in his face. Job just finished arguing that no man is perfect. And he questioned, we looked at it last week, he, made, he asked the question, how can anyone stand before God in the right? Job's not standing there claiming to be perfect. Job, if you imagine Job, he had to be hearing the words of Zophar, thinking, dude, have you been listening to me? Have you been listening to anything that I've been saying? Because you're standing there trying to throw back words in my face that I haven't said. In verses 5 and 6, we see Zophar's pride and arrogance on full display. He says, But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you. Do you realize what Zophar's saying here? He's saying, I wish God would speak. Because if He would, you'd quickly realize that I'm right, Job. If, If God would open his mouth, you'd know that I'm right. You're a mocker of God. You're a liar. In this type of calamity, the situation that you find yourself in, it doesn't fall on one who's righteous. And if we know that to be true, Job, then you're not righteous. No matter how hard you try to defend yourself, it's a waste of time. Essentially, the message of Zophar is shut up, come clean and repent. And, and he goes even further. Zophar tells Job, listen, you should be grateful that God hasn't taken it on you worse. In verse 6, He says, uh, he would show you the secrets of wisdom, for true wisdom has two sides. Know then that God has chosen to overlook some of your iniquities. He's arguing with Job that God's shown some mercy and has withheld some judgment for Job. Now, there's some truth in that, that God is merciful, and at times God stays his hand, and he offers us every opportunity to come back into fellowship with him. I think that's on full display in the culture with some of the things you see now. I mean, you can see some patience of God with some of it. Just turn your television on. God has some patience, right? But we have to remember that God is just. And in time, the payment's going to come due. And all we can say is thanks be to God that our payment was made full in Christ. And it's ironic here that Zophar pays tribute to the mercy of God while showing no mercy himself. There's absolutely no mercy in the words of Zophar. His message is basically, listen, Job, I'm right, you're wrong. And that's not about comfort, it's not about counseling. Again, I take you back to what did they say was their whole mission, to come and to sympathize and to bring comfort to Job, and that is not what we see on display here. In the second half or or most of this speech of Zophar, from verse 6 to verse 20, what we see is, a hint, or maybe more of a hint, of of legalism with Zophar. He takes a very legalistic approach, and what we see is his arrogance really shine through. Again, it's this idea that I'm right, and Job, you need to listen. In verses 7 through 11, just like we saw with the other friends, Zophar tells Job, listen, let me tell you a little something about God. And you can feel As you read that, you can feel this condescending tone, like, I'm better than you, Job. You need to sit down, shut up, and listen, because I'm going to tell you something about God. You think you know God? Let me teach you about Him. And what Zophar does is he appeals to this deep wisdom of God. Again, it's condescending and accusatory, and he asks Job, Can you understand the deep things of God? Do you know His limits? Can you control Him? The things he knows stretch higher than the heaven, deeper than death, and measure longer than the length of the earth or the depths of the sea. He's telling Job, listen, God's knowledge and wisdom are immense. And you claim to know it, Job? There's a couple different approaches that I think we can take to this here. And there's I, there's no direct mention of it in the text. I couldn't find any commentaries to support it. But in a sense, I get this feeling that Zophar could potentially be taunting Job with his idea that, I know God better than you do. I know God better than you do. Almost as if he's saying, Do you know the depth, knowledge, and wisdom of God like I do, Job? Now, if that's not the case, then you can still make another argument here that Zophar is claiming, Listen, Job, you can't know these things. You can't know them. You can't know God. And we've got to be really careful here, because let me ask you a couple questions. Can you know the intricacies and the depth of God's knowledge and wisdom? Can you know those things? No. The answer is clearly no. But the next question is, can we know some things about God? Yeah, absolutely we can. So just because we can't know everything about God, doesn't mean we can't know some things about God. So we've got to be very very leery of what Zophar is saying here. Zophar is providing some false counsel. He continues with these prideful jabs in verses 11 and 12. And maybe these are some of the most hurtful comments that we've seen up to this point. It says, For he knows worthless men when he sees iniquity. Will he not consider it? He looks at Job. He says, Listen, Job, God knows worthless men. And when he sees iniquity... Is he not going to consider it? Here's here's the translation. Job, God knows worthless when he sees it. You want to know when he sees it the most? When he looks at you. Are you stupid enough to think that when God looks on your sin that he's not going to deal with it? Get over yourself, Job. It goes on, it says, But a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born of a man. So essentially what he's saying is, Oh wait, that's right, Job. You are stupid. You don't get it, and you're never going to get it. Because a, a wild donkey's cult is never going to be born out of a man. That's his way of saying, you're too stupid to get it. You don't understand what we're saying. Because remember, I'm number three. I'm the third guy that's trying to tell you the same thing in a little different way, and you obviously don't get it. I think in some ways, Zophar's argument here, it draws a comparison to the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector that we find in Luke 18. And Zophar's playing the part of the Pharisee, while Job plays the part of the tax collector. Right? Where remember, If you remember, the, uh, the Pharisee is over in the corner praying, thank you, God, that I'm not like that guy. <laughs> and the tax collector is just humbly, you know, pouring his heart out before God. And that's what we see Job doing. And Zophar is just thinking, man, at least I'm not like Job. He's, he's putting out this holier-than-thou attitude. And Zophar follows up these, these harsh comments with a plan. It's almost like he thinks he's doing a favor for Job. He says, listen, here's what you need to do, Job. And it's this similar plan that we see with the previous two friends. He says, repent and get right with God. That's what you need to do. And if you do, he's going to bless you. And there's some truth to what Zophar's plan, but it just doesn't apply to Job. Zophar makes this mistake of assumption. He knows Job's situation completely, right? Which he doesn't. He doesn't know Job's situation completely, but he thinks he does. And he also lets his own pride and his legalistic attitude get in the way. He knows what's right, and Job just needs to fall in line and listen. He presents himself as a holier-than-thou which is one of the least ways to be effective. People are not going to listen when we present ourselves that way. Again, there's no attempt at comfort or sympathy here. It's only an attempt to assert his perceived authority and wisdom. While there's some truth in what he provides, Zophar completely dismisses the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. Let's flip over there. I didn't have that written down in my notes, but let's read that. 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, where Paul says, If I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy, it's not boastful, it's not arrogant. It's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not irritable, and it does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. Paul's whole point is, you can have all these spiritual gifts, but if you don't practice them in love, they're not going to be effective. Zophar can have all this wisdom, he can provide all of these answers to Job, at least in his mind, but he has zero chance of being effective, if there's no love, there is no love and mercy here with Zophar. Job needs comfort, and what he gets, what he gets is everything but comfort, right? And he leaves Zophar with no chance of being effective because there's no love there. In addition, there's one one final key mistake that Zophar makes, and it's this: uh, it's another assumption that he has to speak for and defend God. For some reason, Zophar feels like. Well, I'm here, and I've got to represent God, and I've got to defend him. And that's not the case. God doesn't need any defense. So we see that a little bit in chapter 12. Here Job starts his response, and he says, Then Job answered, No doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. But I also have a mind like you. I'm not inferior to you. Who doesn't know about the things that you're talking about? I'm a laughingstock to my friends. By calling on God, who answers me? The righteous and an upright man is a lapping stock. The one who is at ease holds calamity and contempt and thinks it is prepared for those whose feet are slipping. The tents of robbers are safe, and those who trouble God are secure. God's, God holds them in his hands. But ask the animals, and they will instruct you. Ask the birds of the sky, and they will tell you. Or speak to the earth, and it will instruct you. Let the fish of the sea inform you, which of these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? The life of every living thing is in his hand, as well as the breath of all mankind. Doesn't the ear test words as the palate tastes food? Wisdom is found with the elderly, and understanding comes with long life. Wisdom and strength belong to God. Counsel and understanding are his. Whatever he tears down cannot be rebuilt. Whoever he imprisons cannot be released. When he withholds water, everything dries up. And when he releases it, it destroys the land. True wisdom and power belong to him. The deceived and the deceiver are his. He leads counselors away barefoot and makes judges go mad. He releases the bonds put on by kings and fastens a belt around their waists. He leads priests away barefoot and overthrows established leaders. He deprives trusted advisors of speech and takes away the elders. Good judgment. He pours out contempt on nobles and disarms the strong. He reveals mysteries from the darkness and brings the deepest darkness into the light. He makes nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges nations, then leads them away. He deprives the world leaders of reason and makes them wander in a trackless wasteland. They grope around in darkness without light. He makes them stagger like a drunkard. So we see in Job's response here that he begins rather sarcastically. Zophar has ridiculed Job as a man lacking basic understanding and wisdom. But Job pushes back on that. And he basically tells Zophar, listen, I have understanding as well as you. You think that you're all wise as though all of the earth's wisdom lies in you and will be lost when you die, but that's not the case. You're not as wise as you think you are. All of these truths that you and your friends have spoken, whether they're applicable to me or not, they're widely known. There's no secrets here. right? Job continues on, and he questions, why am I the one that's being mocked? He's the one that's blameless and upright. He's the one that's speaking to God, and yet he's the one that's being mocked by his friends while it appears that those who provoke God don't experience what he's experiencing, right? And again, remember the theology that's presented by Job's three friends. It's based on that all the righteous being blessed and all the wicked being judged. And it's probable that while Job experienced good times, he might have agreed with them. But now in his new situation, Job's saying, listen, my view's changed. The way that I see the world's changed, but the way that I see God hasn't changed. And he goes on and he talks about God in verses 7 through 25. He, he speaks about the power and might of God while belittling the speech of Zophar. All the things that Zophar has said can be attested to by the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and even the plants. That's Job's way of saying, listen, Zophar, all your wisdom is, is so much for wisdom. The plant can tell me what you told me. <laughs> Not a lot there, man. It's not as lofty as you think it is. You've got no inside information. And in fact, this theology that you're presenting, this idea that 100% of the time the righteous are blessed and the wicked are judged, it doesn't match the world that we live in because I know me and I know my situation and it doesn't match me. In verse 13, Job declares that true wisdom and strength come from God. He says, wisdom and strength belong to God. Counsel and understanding are his. I mean, that's, that's an attempt at a little jab there. He's saying, listen, you want me to get counsel and wisdom for you, and I'm telling you that wisdom is found with God. Strength is found with God. Counsel and understanding are his. I'm going to let him counsel me instead of you. I'm tired of listening to you. I'm tired of listening to my other two friends. You're not providing any sympathy, and you're not helping. Your wisdom is the one that's lacking, God's wisdom doesn't lack. He goes on and he talks about it's God alone that has the power over men, over the minds of men, over the rulers of the earth, over the darkness, and over nations as a whole. God's the one with the power. God's the one with true wisdom. He's the one with true strength. And so far, guess what, man? That's who I'm going to listen to because I'm sick and tired of listening to you. He goes on in chapter 13 and he talks about true authority. Remember, Zophar's come to him, and he says, says, holier than thou. Like, you want to know authority, Job? It's me. I'm the one with authority. You need to listen. Shut up and listen. So Job's going to push back and talk about true authority in chapter 13. He says, look, my eyes have seen all of this. My ears have heard and understood it. Everything you know, I know. I'm not inferior to you. Yet I prefer to speak to the Almighty and argue my case before God. You use lies like plaster. You're all worthless healers. If only you would shut up and let that be your wisdom. (laughs) Hear now my argument and listen to my defense. Would you testify unjustly on God's behalf or speak deceitfully for him? Would you show partiality to him or argue the case in his defense? Would it go well if he examined you? because you deceive him as you would deceive a man? Surely he would rebuke you if you secretly showed partiality. "'Would God's majesty not terrify you? "'Would his dread not fall on you? "'Your memorable sayings are proverbs of ash. "'Your defenses are made of clay. "'Be quiet and I will speak. "'Let whatever comes happen to me. "'I will put myself at risk and take my life in my own hands. "'Even if he kills me, I will hope in him. "'I will still defend my ways before him. "'Yet this will result in my deliverance, "'for no godless person can appear before him. "'Pay close attention to my words. "'Let my declaration ring in your ears.' Now then, I have prepared my case. I know that I am right. Can anyone indict me? If so, I'll be silent and die. Only grant these two things to me, God, so that I will not have to hide from your presence. Remove your hand from me, and do not let your terror frighten me. Then call, and I will answer, and I will speak, and you can respond to me. How many iniquities and sins have I committed? Reveal to me my transgression and sin. Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? Will you frighten a wind-driven leaf? Will you chase after dry straw? For you record bitter accusations against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. You put my feet in the stocks and stand watch over all my paths, setting a limit for the soles of my feet. A person wears out like something rotten, like a moth-eaten garment. Job's beginning to really push back on what all three of his friends have said. He's had enough. He's listened to all three of them speak, and he's had enough. He tells him that, listen, I'm the one that's experienced all of this. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've also seen all that you've spoken of. What they know, he knows. But most of it doesn't apply to him. I mean, he comes right out and says it. Listen, I'm not inferior to you. Quit treating me like I am. All these friends have done is lie to Job. Some lies have been intentional. Some lies have been unintentional. But they're all lies. And Job describes them as worthless physicians. You came here to help me, and that's the last thing you've done. You don't have the ability to truly diagnose what's going on here. You think you do. You're speaking all what you consider to be wisdom. You think you, you're making all these assumptions about my situation, but you don't have the ability to diagnose what's going on. Job says, I wish you'd just be silent. He declares that that would be their true wisdom. <laughs> he says, listen, you want to be wise? Just shut up. That's where your wisdom would come into play. In other words, you've been worthless. Why did you come here? Why did you come here again? Some comfort you are. That's what Job's telling him. Verses 7 and 8 get very interesting. He says, Would you testify unjustly on God's behalf or speak deceitfully for him? Would you show partiality to him or are you the case in his defense? He's saying, Would you speak falsely for God? Would you plead the case for God? Why do you feel the need to defend God? Is he not capable of defending himself? does it just make you feel better if he searched you out how would you feel you try to deceive me with your lies and your poor counsel do you think you can deceive God as well you can see here where Job's kind of turning his their words back on them he says you think I'm lying to God you're the one that's misrepresenting him he said why don't you try defending yourself if God searched you out what's he going to find he says your defense would be and is worthless and he goes on to argue, listen, I should be able to present my case before God. Why? Because God's the one with true authority. In other words, he's saying, why do I need, why do I need to present my case before you? What authority do you have over me? I should have to be able to present my case before God. All, all three of Job's friends have, have pranced around like they have the true authority. But that's not the case. God's the one with authority. And Job declares that he's ready to take his case before God regardless of how it shakes out. Verse fifteen is key. I, I would circle it and highlight it as one of the key verses of the whole book. And I, it says here in this is the Christian standard. It says even if he kills me, I'll hope in him. I prefer the ESV. It says though he slay me, I will hope in him. Again, it's that picture of John six where Jesus looks at Peter and says, "All these people have left. Are you going to leave too?" Job saying, "It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You don't have any authority so far." You don't have any authority, Bildad. You don't have any authority, Eliphaz. God's the one with authority. He's my only hope. And regardless of what he does to me, I'm going to hope in him. He's leaning on the sovereignty and majesty of God because his friend's counsel is of no benefit. They provide Job with no hope. And even though Job recognizes that God's hand has been at work in his devastation, he also realizes that God is his only hope. Job simply longs to be right before God. And that's what we're going to see here in chapter 14. He says, "'Anyone born of a woman is short of days and full of trouble. He blossoms like a flower, then he withers. He flees like a shadow, and he doesn't last. Do you really take notice of one like this? Will you bring me into judgment against you? Who can produce something pure from what's impure? No one. Since a person's days are determined, and the number of his months depend on you, and since you have set limits he cannot pass, look away from him and let him rest.'" So that he can enjoy his day like a hired worker. There's hope for a tree. If it's cut down, it will sprout again. And its shoots will not die. If its roots grow old in the ground and its stump starts to die in the soil, the scent of water makes it thrive and produce twigs like a sapling. But a person dies and fades away. He breathes his last. Where is he? As water disappears from a lake and a river becomes parched and dry, so people lie down never to rise again. They will not wake up until the heavens are no more. They will not stir from their sleep. If only you would hide me in Sheol and conceal me until your anger passes. If only you would appoint a time for me and then remember me. When a person dies, will he come back to life? If so, I would wait all the days of my struggle until my relief comes. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands. For then you would count my steps, but would not take note of my sin. My rebellion would be sealed up in a bag and you would cover over my iniquity. But as the mountain collapses and crumbles, and a rock is dislodged from its place, as water wears away stones and torrents wash away the soil from the land, so you destroy a man's hope. You completely overpower him, and he passes on. You change his appearance and send him away. If his sons receive honor, he does not know it. If they become insignificant, he is unaware of it. He feels only the pain of his own body and mourns only for himself. So what you see in verse 14, this is a continuation is this roller coaster of Job's emotions and his thoughts. And he's beginning to ponder life after death. And he hopes for true life, full of peace with God. In verse 4, he declares, Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There's not one. And Job, Job's a speaking of the fate of man here. It's as if he's saying, I'm not clean, I don't claim to be. Contrary to what Zophar said, all of man is unclean. And then he asks the question in verses 7 through 10, is there life after death? Is there any hope? He makes this argument that a tree, if you cut a tree down to nothing more than a stump, it's eventually going to bud again. There will be new life. It's going it's to shoot out branches. And Job's asking the question, what about me? What about me? If a man dies and breathes his last, what then? Does he have hope like a tree has hope? Job's been longing for death in his misery, right? We saw where uh, mention after mention, he's like, I wish I was never born. I wish I would just die. But now he's beginning to think through that process, and he's a little unsure of what follows it. In verses 11 through 12, he laments that death could possibly be it. He's like, is that it? Do I die and that's it? he compares man to a river that dries up. Once it's gone, it's gone. It doesn't come back. It seems to be the cries of a hurting man that isn't really sure where to turn. He wants hope, but he doesn't know where to find it. And he cries out in verse 13, Hide me in death, but remember me. What he's saying is don't let this be. Don't let life simply end in death. Remember me beyond death. Provide for me a renewal. And in verse 14, we get the same question again. And this time it's asked directly. If a man dies, shall he live again? He says, all the days of my service, I would wait till my renewal should come. In other words, it's my only hope is in you and God, I'm willing to wait. In verses 15 through 17, Job says that in this renewal after death, God would not remember the sin of man. It would be sealed up and covered. These are some powerful words. This again, we've seen this week after week after week. This is a foreshadowing of Jesus. It's all over this book. And maybe this is the greatest right here. That all of my sins would be covered and they'd be sealed up and remembered no more. That's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. But we see the roller coaster because quickly, what does Job do? Right after those statements, he reverts back to despair. And he closes out this prayer. He basically says, this is my hope, but I don't see it. It doesn't feel like that's going to happen. God, this is what I want to happen. I want to be restored. I want to have hope. But I don't see it. And I don't feel it. Job's in a dark place. Right? And even though he feels this way, we know, reading this book, that his hope is a reality through the work of Christ on the cross. God does cover our sin and he remembers it no more. So, as we look at those chapters as we look at that last interaction of this first round of speeches what what do we draw from it what do we get i got six things for you here real quick but the f- the first one is listen listen i think there's a lot that can be learned from this book in terms of how do we deal with hurting people if we want to minister how do we do it and the, and one of the greatest things we can do is listening one of the greatest parts of counseling is listening it's not about being right Remember, Job, Zophar didn't listen. Zophar's putting words in Job's mouth. He's saying, you've claimed this and this and this, when Job hadn't claimed those things. He didn't take time to hear Job. And as a result, Job tells him what? Your words are useless. Why don't you just shut up? There is no, there is no comfort here. There is no sympathy. There is no counseling. Zophar has zero chance of being affected because he didn't listen. And if we can fall into that same trap and we have zero chance of being effective if we don't listen to people. It's not our job to assume. It's not our job to try to fill in the gaps. It's our job to listen and to provide comfort. The second thing that we see is you're to be on God's side. It's not, it's not the other way around. It doesn't work that way. God's not supposed to be on our side. You're to be on God's side. It, that reminded me, reading these chapters reminded me of a quote from Abraham Lincoln where he said, Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side because God's always right. That's the same place we should be. Again, it's, this, it's the same picture. of I, didn't, I did not do my homework as well as I should have, but it's that passage in Joshua that Dale referred to a couple weeks ago. You know, but Joshua is wondering. He's not necessarily wondering, but he's walking outside the camp and he encounters the angel of the Lord. And he encounters him with a sword. And he thinks, obviously, this guy, the angel of the Lord, has got a human presence about him because it doesn't say that, that uh, he was recognized as the angel of the Lord right away. And he asks, Joshua asks the guy, hey, you know, in the back of his mind, Joshua's thinking, I'm about to get waxed right here. I've wandered off from the camp and this guy's about to take me out. Whose side are you on? are you on their side? Are you on our side? And the angel of the Lord responds, no. (laughs) It's an interesting response. He just says, no, because I'm not on anybody's side. I'm on God's side. So our job, our job is, we, we do not have to go out of our way to defend God. We don't make the assumption that God's on our side. Our job is simply to be on his side. He's the one that has complete authority like Job recognized. My grandfather used to say all the time, he used to, he's a very patient man, but he used to say all the time, you don't have to fight God's battles for him. You know, and too often we want to take up the battle and fight on God's behalf. He's got it under control. It's, it's not God's responsibility to be on our side. It's our responsibility to be on God's side. And Zophar fell into the trap of, listen, Job, if you just listen, if God would speak, you'd hear that I'm right because God's on my side. That's not the way it works. We're to be on God's side. The third thing is that point that we talked about, just because we don't know everything about God doesn't mean we can't know something about God. Yeah, sure, God is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. There's no way we we can grasp the intricacies and the depths of his knowledge, but that doesn't mean we can't know something about God. fourth, counseling without love and mercy is often not effective counseling. As we attempt to reach out to others to provide sympathy and comfort, if there is no love and mercy, we're not going to be effective. Again, the the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians, you know, God equips every believer with spiritual gifts. God has the expectation that every believer puts those spiritual gifts to use. But regardless of how he's gifted me, if I don't, apply those gifts with love, I'm not going to be effective. People aren't going to hear me. Fifth, God alone possesses true wisdom and authority. Can we get wisdom from listening to other people? Sure. But again, just like we saw with Eliphaz, who relied too much on personal experience, Right Then we got uh, Bildad, who, re- who relied too much on tradition. If we rely too much on the wisdom from other humans, well, is what uh, Charles just read there a minute ago. Humans are frail. You know, Don't rely on the wisdom of men because they're frail. God alone is the one who possesses true wisdom and authority, and we're the ones that are to recognize that. We should find our wisdom in God. We should find our wisdom in Scripture. Can we find it from other people? Absolutely, but it's not our number one go-to. That shouldn't serve as our foundation. Our foundation should serve as the Word of God. The last thing is just that true life is found in Christ, and that's what we need to understand. Uh, Dale talked about it this morning. You know, Job lost everything. He lost everything. He had all this wealth, all these possessions, this large family, and he lost it all. But even after all that loss, he recognized that true life is only found in God. To who am I going to turn? You know, God is my only hope. And you hear him in this last chapter that we looked at tonight as he's this is my hope. I want to be restored. I want to be restored with you. I want there to be life after death. I want you to remember me. I want you to forget my iniquity. And we know that through Christ and his work on the cross that that hope is a reality. If we place our trust and hope in Christ. That's where our true life is found. And we too easily can get wrapped up in the things of this world and look for satisfaction and happiness and joy in all the wrong places when ultimately all those things are going are gonna to fall apart. And like Dale was talking about this morning with the camel, you know, we're going to have to be like the camel going through that gate and everything is going to be stripped away. And the only thing that's going to matter is do we have hope in Christ? Do we have a relationship with Him? Because that's where true life is found. So congratulations, you've made it through the first round of conversations. <laughs> Hopefully it was not too repetitive. These guys keep whacking him over the head. Uh, the bad news is we've got three rounds total, so we're about to enter the second round. Job gets to listen to these guys blow more hot air. But there's more that we can learn from them uh, if you will be patient. And again, I, I just I would recommend to you to read ahead. You know, Next week we'll look at Eliphaz's second speech in... Uh, 15, 16, and 17. And uh, we'll see what God has for us in that. But let's pray and uh, we'll conclude. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for just what your word has to show us. And we we thank you what we can learn from these interactions between Job and his three friends. And Lord, I pray that ultimately, regardless of what comes our way uh, by your hand, that we would cling to our hope in you like Job did. Uh, There will be times where that hope may be very, very small. But I pray that it would never completely vanish from our spirit, that we would recognize that you're a giver of all things, good and bad, and that, uh, man, that regardless of the highs or the lows, that we would praise you in all things. Lord, we thank you for the breath that you've given us today and uh, for the breath that we, we hopefully assume that you will give us for tomorrow. And I pray that as we leave this place, that we wouldn't be afraid to just uh, to share your gospel and to share your name with those that, that you place in our path this week. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.